If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast, where each episode brings you interviews and ideas from nonprofit leaders. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast, where we're recording from the 2017 Board Leadership Forum. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg, and we will be joined by Erica Mills today to share how nonprofits can better use language to lead, engage, and advocate. The words we use and the way in which we use them are crucial to how we are perceived and also how people hear our message. In fact, while drafting my thoughts for this intro, I actually rewrote that last sentence at least five times, and I'm not making it up. I spent more time on that last sentence than I did on the next three paragraphs, which are about me rewriting it. And why? Why did I draft this so many times? Well, because the first time that I wrote it, it did not carry the tone and the impact that I really wanted it to have. You see, I wanted to have kind of a serious tone, and I wanted to use words that I thought would make an impact on you, the folks that actually download, I want to say tune in, but the folks that actually download and listen to the podcast. When it comes to communication, we are all on a journey, and it's a journey of continuous improvement. It's not like we ever hit communication nirvana. So there are some days that I'm really good at the words that I write and the words that I say. And there are some days that it feels like no matter what I do, I cannot get the right words. So I felt that it was really appropriate that we bring Erica Mills in to have a conversation with us about the words that we use. Now, she actually is one of the many very dynamic speakers at this year's Board Leadership Forum. And so she is going to help us to use language to lead, engage, and advocate. Before we bring her on, though, let me tell you a little bit about her. Erica Mills directs the Nancy Bell Evans Center on Nonprofits and Philanthropy at the University of Washington, and she also teaches graduate school there. Now, in addition to that, 
She has an active consulting firm. She publishes. She's been in the Stanford Social Innovation Review and in the Chronicle of Philanthropy. She does research. She developed the this amazing web app, which we're going to talk about uh, toward the end of our conversation today. So, at the, but that web app, I will tell you, give you a quick quick teaser on it. It's called Wordifier, and it's a free online tool that helps nonprofits amplify their words. It's really incredible. We're going to talk about that later. The last thing I want to tell you about Erica is that she founded Claxon, a company that teaches nonprofits how to create marketable and remarkable messages. And guess what? I lied. I want to tell you one more thing. Um, she's an author. She wrote a book that's called Pitch Falls, Why Bad Pitches Happen to Good People. So, you know, when I have to go back, when I'm introducing someone and tell you multiple times, I'm just going to tell you one more thing. This probably means they're really accomplished, and it probably means that we're about to learn a lot from them. So now that I have raised everybody's expectations, and Erica has a very high bar to hit, let's cue the music and welcome Erica. The energy, the faith, the devotion, which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. Welcome to the podcast, Erica. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So your specialty is words. Tell us about this. That is true. Words, words, and more words. Yeah. You know, people frequently ask me kind of how I got into becoming a word nerd. Um, and I don't have a great response to this, but I get asked it often enough that I reflect on it because uh, I am truly obsessed with them. And I think where it, what keeps me hooked on it is seeing the impact that it really can have for organizations. I think that's true of organizations of all sizes, but I would say small to mid-sized organizations in some ways uh, have the, the biggest opportunity for leverage, you know, for leveraging language. Um, I mean, I, I think about words as a renewable resource, right? There's a, there's a ton of them. And it, you know, it really depends on which source you go to, but there's somewhere between 250,000 and a million words in the English language, right? That's just, that's just a ton of words. <laughs> it's, it's a ton of words, and we can talk a little bit more about the research I've done uh, and how we came to learn that nonprofits on average on their websites only use 0.03% of those words. Wow. 0.03%. Hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to do the math here. Right? It's minuscule. Oh, and by that, I mean, that's using the most conservative estimate. That's using the 250,000 number, right? So if you use the higher one, it's, it's even less. So, you know, when we learned that through the research, it was like, oh, that's really sad. That makes me sad. Because it means that we're not, we're not communicating about the work in a very interesting way. Right, And so it's this sort of almost irony of organizations doing the most important work on the planet, some of the hardest work on the planet, in very resource-constrained environments. They have this renewable free resource called words and totally not leveraging it. Right, So I think that – I mean, I did grow up speaking French, and I was born in Canada. I did French immersion for the first few years, and there was something about French – and the French, I mean, they do love language in a way that I have not experienced English speakers loving it. It really is like a, it's a love affair with words. So I think that that definitely influenced me. Um, but what keeps me hooked is seeing just again and again and again people, both at the individual level, you know, staff, board, volunteers, implement kind of the tips and tricks. And I mean, super easy, straightforward stuff that once you hear it, you're like, well, duh, of course I should be doing that. 
seeing them, the individual and the organizational level and the impact that it can have, just making those small adjustments is it's amazing. So I want to reflect on something. I, I love that you said they're a renewable resource, but you can use them too much. And what I thought when you said that was, wow, I, nev I never quite conceived of it this way. But you can't use up words, but you can wear them out. You can totally wear them out. You know, I just presented at the Board Service Leadership Forum earlier, and somebody asked a great follow-up question, which I get pretty regularly, which is, you know, so there's this balance between how do you use words that people understand, so they're not having to work hard, right? And so, so it's like high reading ease, but still use words that are interesting. My common response is use the science to, to create the art. So use the science of, you know, some, some of the tools I've developed, flesh, reading ease, flesh, Kincaid, you know, grade level, sort of all of these things to ground mm -hmm. your thinking and your doing and your writing. But fundamentally, you know, you need humans. So that's the, the science meeting art. And the other thing is, you know, I, I really encourage people to think about not writing sentences or writing paragraphs or even writing messaging, but building it or architecting it. So... Uh, my standard advice is that you start, if, especially, so, so let's use mission statements as an example, okay? Because every nonprofit has to have one and most of them are terrible. We can talk about the research that, I mean, I'm not just sort of randomly saying that, they're like quite bad. Um, so my common advice is, you know, in the English language, we, we have 50%, approximately 50% nouns, 25% adjectives, 14% verbs, the rest is other things, including adverbs. Start with your verb, right? So pick the verb. So that you pick the verb that it's interesting, not just that it's interesting, but verbs are action words, right? And so they represent the change that you're committing to creating, right? And in your mission statement, it really is the change that you're committing to creating the world. Uh, and so that's contextual, right? But, but verbs are your action words. So when you, what, what I found is when organizations start with that as their initial building block, just, you know, like, out of gate right away, everything that follows is going to be more compellingly written or spoken. So you just helped me do my job better and make it <laughs> a little bit easier. When, when I consult, and, I, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but when I'm helping with the strategic planning process, we, we work on reviewing and revising the mission. And I always challenge the work group because um, we have a work group that meets six or eight times before the retreat, mm -hmm. and I challenge the work group to create a mission that's 10 words. And you know, the first reaction is we can't. And then, then I give them a list of 50 nonprofits that all have mission statements ranging from two words to 10. But what I'd never thought about doing was saying, pick your verb, pick your verb and build from there. And that's gonna help these groups so much. Because up to this point, I've been like, well, other people did it, go figure it out and come back and tell me what it is. I know, when people first hear it, they're like, pick my verb, like, what is she talking about? And then you're like, oh. Yeah, like, do you heal? What do you do? What fundamentally do you do? And, you know, it, there's also something about having a conversation about a part of speech, which is very crystallizing, you know, particularly in strategic planning processes, which can be a little, like, and a little plotting, uh, but also, frankly, noun-heavy, right? So we people, places, and things, which it, it's not that I don't want us to focus on people, places, and things. That's fundamentally the work of the sector. <laughs> But it's just so easy to get lazy with your verbs, and, and that's, that's not in service to the, to the people and the places and the things that we care about in the end. So again, I just, I absolutely love that. So thank you. So you mentioned you've got some other tips and tricks, or as young folks today would call them hacks. What are some of those other tips, tricks, and hacks? You know, I don't know if this is a hack, but I do think if they're clear on their brand first, and specifically what I mean is their adjectives and their brand personality. 
there's so many words. And so that defining that, picking three adjectives that really define the organization substantively. And they should and they should be different, right? So you don't want to be like caring, kind, loving. Okay. That's all one bucket. Right. So you want them to be sort of substantively different. Yeah. Um, you know, caring, fierce, generous, for instance. Mm-hmm. Right? You get a very different sense from that. And if you, you know, the word fierce would lead you to a different type of word, a different feeling to the words, Mm -hmm. um, that can really help. Uh, The other thing about that is that in an organizational context, if you don't have your brand personality defined for the organization, what happens is just a great big mushing up of everybody's individual, you know, likes, dislikes of words. I mean, it's the same when you do like a logo or, you know, anything else and, you know, you show people the comps and they're like, but I don't like blue. Rather than getting into, but I like blue, but I don't like blue. Oh, it's too bright a blue. It's like, is that fierce? Is blue a fierce color? I don't know. But you can get like a visual of the different type. It's not a bank blue. That's a different blue. I almost got myself sued by a major bank. I was going to say, so-and-so's bank's blue is pretty fierce, but. Oh, I did mention this already. I, I mean, I write a ton, obviously. I run everything I write through reading ease. I noticed you mentioned the Flesh Kincaid and my mind flashed back to WordPerfect 1994, 1995, because it used to give that to you. And so when you said that, I thought, I've not seen that on my spell check in so long. So how do you turn it on in Word? You go into, I don't have it open, but it's like file options, excuse me, um, spelling and grammar. And there's a little checkbox that says readability statistic. And then when you go, and it doesn't matter you know, what you're reviewing, um, when you do the spelling and grammar check, it will automatically at the end, it's going to come up with a box. In the box, it will tell you the two things you're looking for, which is the reading ease and then the reading grade level. And what you're going for is a reading ease score of over 50 um, and a grade level of grade seven. Okay, so grade seven doesn't mean that you think that your audience, it's based on a huge body of work and research that says at that level, it is like the sweet spot for our brains being able to process the content and not being stuck on the words themselves. So another way of thinking about it is like, regardless of grade level, that is where we process most easily. So what are you saying then? Is grade seven means it's not like your science tech? Correct. Um, and I, t- I can't remember how long ago it was, a year and a half, two years ago, I started um, actually publishing every blog, every blog post on Claxon's blog will have the reading ease. And, you know, once you, once you get in the habit of this and it really does become a habit, you'll feel it. You can feel it when you're writing over and when it's too convoluted. And the things that it's looking for are, it's, it's actually some, kind of more or less a ratio of number of syllables to length of sentence. So organizations that have multisyllabic names are a little bit of a disadvantage. So my one, like, I don't know if it's a hack, but just put in we. Because unless you're going to change the name of your organization, you're going to have, like, skewed statistics coming at you, and that's not useful. So just put we and adjust that way. You just answered the question I was about to ask you. You know, if you do get a score that's really high on grade level and really low on reading ease, how do you go back and fix it? You just answered that. Thank you. Yeah, and that gets back to the, you know, building or architecting the sentences. Do you see the language people should be using is different when it's in print form versus social media? I realize that in my mind, I think of social media sort of as not print, but it's written. So the distinction I make is between written or spoken. Which, but it's an interesting thing about social media because that actually sits in the middle and I hadn't, I haven't done a lot of thinking about that. So when I work with organizations or my students, <laughs> they, get, they get subjected to the exact same uh, things. What I say is we're going to optimize first for the spoken word. 
right? Because And even this is even with mission statements, right? I want to optimize first for the spoken word. Because it is very easy, because we speak more casually than we write, okay? So if you come up with a sentence that you can say, right, so it's repeatable, it's super easy to take that sentence and elevate it if you need to, you know, in a written form. The reverse is not true, right? So if you've written this, and oh, it's like so heartbreaking, you know, these like, you know, we have a Dior clients and, You've worked with them and they've like, you know, blood, sweat and tears have gone into this sentence and it's beautiful and they love this sentence. And they're like, oh, here's a sentence. And then people say it and I mean, they just sound like robots, right? Because it's too much, we don't speak like that. Um, so then it feels like a demotion of your beautiful sentence, which is emotionally terrible. So that's, if you optimize for the spoken word, you can elevate, but not the, not the other way. So I'll share with you, there's an exercise that I do with clients. So what we do is we take their old mission and we do this as the full board retreat. And we um, essentially put one word on card, on a three by five card. So like if they have a, currently have a 55 word mission, there's 55 three by five cards. Each one has one word on it. And then we take their proposed mission, which has 10 words or less. So, you know, there's 10 or less three by five cards. We divide them into two groups and we have a competition. And, and it's funny because what I love about that exercise is the people who are adamant that this word must be in our mission, if they're in the group that has to decode a 55 word mission, they decide, you know what? This is a much more beautiful, elegant way to do the mission. Let's do it shorter. So it's funny because like, that's I think about the same thing when it comes to like a beautifully written sentence. Mm -hmm. If it was scrambled and you had to unscramble it. Yeah, how could you do it? That's a fun exercise. You know, having it be 10 words or less uh, is, you know, kind of based on this, I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. Principle, which we attribute to Mark Twain, which actually he was paraphrasing Blaise Pascal. I'm just a little factoid for your listeners. <laughs> But it is harder. I mean, it's much harder. I have my students, one of my assignments is that they each week have to not just synthesize or summarize the week, but in 140 characters or less, they need to show me that not only do they get fundamentally what we were talking about, but they have to connect it to something else. Yeah, and you know, I'm a, I, you know, they're policy students and also nonprofit leaders or aspiring nonprofit leaders, but what they are trained primarily to do is write a memo, which is a fantastic skill. I mean, and so I'm not knocking the memo writing, but to go from memo writing to writing a tweet, uh, that's, that's hard. So do you make them condense a memo down into a tweet, or what exactly is this assignment? You've heard the assignment, right? So in any given week, they have you know readings, sometimes some videos. We'll have a lecture. We have a lot of class discussions, pretty interactive. Like I'm thinking right now I'm teaching marketing and social innovation, and their task is to sort of take that all in and whatever struck them, communicate it back in our 40 characters list. And how do you grade that? I should know this off the top of my head. Four points for did they get a key takeaway, right? Like, it's not like, oh, rabbits. Well, we weren't talking about rabbits. We were actually talking about branding or messaging. or So there's no rabbits, right? So that's, you know, I want to know that they kind of got it. And then three points for, like, bringing in or sort of referencing in some way readings or something that they were sort of given. Uh, in class, so can they connect the dots? And then three additional points if they find something else. So really, they uh, part of what I like about that is they get it that they're like, okay, I'm in control of my grade. If I want a bad grade, I just do one of these three. Smart. I like that. I like that a lot. Well, Erica, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to discuss your work with the Evans School of Public Policy and Governance at the University of Washington.
The Successful Nonprofits Podcast is produced by the Goldenberg Group as part of our mission to provide board development, strategic planning, and interim executives that help nonprofits thrive in a competitive environment. Find out more about what we do at goldenberggroup.com. Welcome back, Erica. So tell me about your work at the Evans School of Public Policy and Governance. Whenever I get asked that, I'm never quite sure where to, like, where to start. There's so much amazing stuff that happens there, so let me sort of sift through my thoughts. I'm a senior lecturer there, so I get to teach, which I love, um, you know, around marketing, communications, nonprofits, and all this stuff. Uh, so I do that, and then I am the director of the Nancy Bell Evans Center on Nonprofits and Philanthropy, and I co-direct that with uh, another faculty member, Professor Mary Kay Gubruti. Um, so I, I took on, I've taught in various capacities at the Evans School for like, I don't know, it's like 10 years or something like that, eight to 10 years. Um, the directorship is relatively new, so I started that about a year and a half ago, and, uh, and it originally was, so it's been around since 93, 94. Um, and was much more kind of a, like a traditional academic center, meaning that it supported the work of one faculty member. So when he uh, went on to another institution, it just sort of like, you know, stuff, they did some stuff. So seeing it, you know, the sector's having a moment. And it's one of those moments where it's like, we really need to step up. Um, and it's one thing to say that, and it's another to know how to do it. So we are mindful of that moment, mindful that, Nationally, there's a whole bunch of support that happens for nonprofits, that capacity building space where we're really raising the floor in that way. And so looking at like what you can uniquely do as an academic institution and, and what our strengths are as a school, where we're focused on is elevating the social sector. And for us, that's nonprofits, foundations, and social enterprise through research and leadership development. Right? So how can we, how can we raise the ceiling um, to not only be focused on like, you know, it's an optimistic view, right? It's like that, that floor is going to get raised. Like amazing things are already happening. They need to keep happening. More is being asked of us. So how can we position the sector so that they're ready for that, you know, whatever comes next? So that's where we're focused now. So it sounds like you're doing research, but also probably you're, you know, you're engaged in teaching the next level of practitioners and thought leaders and that type of thing as well. A whole, I mean, one of the things that I really love about the Evans School is we have a whole suite of services. So sort of like wherever you are in your career, if you raise your hand and you say, I'm ready for that next step, there is something for you. So our core, you know, I say what we're primarily known for is our master's in public administration. Um, we had almost just shy of 200 incoming graduate students this year, which is our biggest class ever. And they're, I mean, they just blow my mind. They're totally amazing. Uh, so we have the MPA, we have an executive MPA, and then sort of, you know, at either end of that continuum. So if those people are early to, you know, some are mid-career executive, obviously they're more, so, you know, they've had more years of experience. So we also have non-degree programs, and this is through Continuum College, so they're non-credit offerings, but we have both the certificate in nonprofit management and also a fundraising certificate. So those are nine months, and they meet every week. I mentioned that because I taught in it for eight years, and I was, again, I'm just like humbled I mean, th these people are working really hard, and then they either come every Wednesday night or they come every other Saturday. I'm like, aren't you tired? 
And of course, at some point, people will be like, yeah, but you're teaching. You're doing the same thing to teach. I'm like, okay, well, that's a fair point. All right. <laughs> but it sometimes seems more remarkable to me. Um, so we have that, which is tends to be folks who have been, I would say, the majority, but you know, they've been working for three to five years. Um, some of them are like test driving the MPA. They think they might want to do that. But others are, are not. They just want another set of skills. And then we have folks who have been in the, in the private sector, and they want to switch into the social sector. Um, and so it's the, I mean, think, the speaking of the nonprofit management certificate, it gives this wonderful, great, it's kind of 30,000-foot view of that. And then we also, and this is an area where we're looking to do more, um, we have sort of executive, non-credit executive offerings, which are week-long intensive. So for 12 years, we've had the Nonprofit Executive Leadership Institute, which is a cohort of about 30 um, executive directors every year who have gone through that. Uh, and it's, it's intense. It's a week, and it's residential, right? So even if you're local, you stay in the hotel with everybody. Yeah, and then we just... Uh, had our first run at something called Accelerating Social Transformation, which was shorter, so that's a, that was a three-day intensive, but really looking at, you know, how can we look at other models, um, it, what does that look like, and then focusing uh, focusing on whatever the particular project or organization was. And those folks came from all over the world. So there's two things specifically I want to ask you about, but before I do, I have to explain. When we look at the downloads of the podcast, it looks almost like a nighttime electricity usage map of America. So the East Coast glows, the West Coast glows. You see a dot about where Chicago should be and a dot where about Houston and Dallas should be. And for anyone else in the middle of the country, you know, we see like a Milky Way looking thing there, but it does not glow. But so all that is to say we have people from all over the country that listen to the podcast. So the two things I want to ask you about, executive MPA program. So give me some information, like how long does it take? How often does it meet, et cetera? One of the reasons I ask is I, I have an MPA, and, and when I got mine back in the 90s, there was no executive MPA yeah. program. So what it meant, because I had to work full time, was I took one class a semester for five years. And it was a long, slow grind. So I was like, ooh, an executive MPA yeah. program, that would be good for someone who's working. So sort of generically, I would say it is, it is structured very similarly to what you would think of for executive MBA okay. programs, which is it is optimized for people who are working full-time. I know we're going to be talking about some other online learning options in a minute, but um, does your program at the University of Washington have any kind of online learning options? That's such a great question. I mean, it's a really interesting time in higher ed. We just, I would say, are early days at the Evans School, and I don't want to comment on the rest of the university, but there's a lot happening online. But we are early days at the Evans School with really integrating online. So we just had this first cohort it has this acronym, so I'm going to have to like dig deep in my brain for the Institute for Public Health Leadership. That's not right, but it's something it's like something around there. So partnership with the Gates Foundation and bringing a whole bunch of wonderful professionals from Africa together to, you know, into an institute, and and that and that was uh, multimodality, right? So they prior had gotten to know each other um, using technology. And then they came together in Seattle for a week. It was a week, two weeks, uh, some period of time. And then they went back, and then they reconvened in Rome. And then they're continuing that, you know, the connection um, online. So that is super exciting to us, right? This idea, and looking at that accelerating social transformation, you know, we'd love to experiment with something similar, right? So to have both the connection and the community aspect happening prior to coming together in person, and, you know, I'm, I, I love all the technology. I love what it can do, and I'm still a big fan of in-person. Yeah. You know, there, there is something magic still about breathing yeah. the same air. Like I'll share with you, I've been loving doing these podcast interviews in person at BLF, 
as opposed to doing them over Skype where I might see the person, but right. you know, it's just not the same thing. So I want to move on to the off the map question. The listeners are going to get a bonus because I thought of an off the map question before, but oftentimes I wait for the muse to give me an off the map question. So, you know, I stalked you online. I checked out your firm's website. I found this really cool thing called Wordifier. Now, I could put any word in, and it would tell me whether it was overused and I should by nonprofits and I shouldn't use it, or if it was okay or somewhere in the middle. So, for example, I learned that the word impact should not be used by nonprofits. It is way overused. Forget it. Stop using it. But I thought, hmm, what's a synonym for impact? And so I typed in outcome. Outcome is not overused. So I love this. But I want you to pull the curtain back and not just say, like, okay, here's how many words it is, but how did you actually develop this so that nonprofits can rely on it at no cost to them? You know, sometimes our best ideas don't come in a linear fashion. I became intrigued by novelty and what it could do for our brains and wondering, like, could we use that to our advantage, right? Because novelty, our brains releases this chemical, you know, in our brains, makes us happy. So we love novelty, and I was sort of wondering, like, could we apply that in some way? And in order to apply that, we would have to know which words were being used and not used. And I sort of naively thought that that data set would exist. Um, and one of the really troubling things that came out of this research is just how, I mean, how, like, minuscule amounts of primary research um, in general for our sector, and I would say specifically on communications. I mean, we're just, we are super light. And, you know, what we end up doing is descriptive analytics, which is fantastic, and it's super robust, which I'll mention in a minute. But, you know, we're nowhere, almost nowhere with predictive analytics, right? Like, we, we can't, we don't have the information to predict things. So, so I got to be in my bonnet about it, and uh, we did a first pass on it, and we were like, oh, cool. So, so we validated that you could do the web scrape and all those things. And then, um, and that was with Tess, who at the time was a student at Seattle U, and now she's gone on to do great things. And then Vicky came along, and Vicky is this, Vicky Williams is this amazing brain. And she was like, so fantastic conceptually, and you need to start over again in terms of how many, how many websites you're going to scrape from. Because what I really, really, really wanted was a tool where you could, like nonprofits, professionals do this incredibly important work. I wanted them to have a tool they could go to and know with confidence, mm -hmm. right? So that meant a 95% confidence interval, okay? And that meant we had to scrape every single word off 2,503 nonprofit websites. And wow. I want to give a nod here to Vicki Williams because she, she had to do it by hand. No. Yep, yeah. by hand. So does, does this mean every year she's got to go back and do it again to stay current? So, you know, we haven't done that. It's, it's, we would like to. We'd like to think this is the baseline because then we could get some interesting information. We haven't, I don't think she's recovered yet. <laughs> it's been years and years she hasn't recovered. Um, so that's, I mean, that's how the Word of Fire came about was sort of this commitment, you know, I, my commitment to this idea that, you know, all of this is learnable. It's all, it's all teachable, it's all learnable, and it's really just a matter of creating tools that are, that are going to work for how busy people are and for how our brains operate. So it's the same rationale for, for launching Claxton University, which is this idea of access, 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 because, I mean, honestly, I get this dreamy vision of, like, what if we solve the communications problems that nonprofits face? Like, what if we solve them? Like, what would that make possible? It would make it possible for them to do even more work. You know, it's sort of a, a commitment to the sector, uh, that's why we don't, I mean, we don't charge for it because as soon as we charge for it, I mean, that really does so many organizations are too tiny even to pay a tiny subscription, right? Yeah. So, you know, yeah. we get asked all the time, like, why aren't you monetizing it? And I'm like, because I just can't bring myself to it. And good for you because I could also see how even if it was a dollar, 
And people are like, yeah, I don't know if it's going to be worth it. And they don't do it. Do you know about how many times a month, a week, a year, whatever, word of fire is used? It's about 1,000 per month, right? But on balance, when we get his email saying, you know, thank you so much. I've, I've hated this word. You know, I'm the grant writer, and I've hated this word for ages. But I didn't have a neutral way of saying to my board chair or my boss, like, we should stop using it. So now I just clack it into the word of fire. It comes up red, and we're like, eh. So I think this is how you do monetize it. You need to develop and sell an app that after someone has been on it for longer than 45 minutes, it shuts down. <laughs> so for those of us that are obsessive compulsive, we'd pay 10 bucks for that. That's how you monetize. Because I really would love to do the updated scrape of websites and all the words and all of that. And then also I'd like to move into predictive analytics. Yeah. I mean, we need it. I promise you a second off the map question. And in the first half, this book jumped into my head. And it's actually one of my favorite books on the planet. And I was like, okay, I have to ask her, although I've already biased you because I said it's one of my favorite on the planet. So, okay. But feel free to break my heart. I have to ask you whether or not this book is still relevant. Elements of Style by Strunk and White. Yes. Thank you. Back when I was an executive director, I used to give every fresh college graduate that we hired. So if you were 22 years old, as part of your welcome gift, I would give you Elements of Style by Strunk and White. I'd say, this is short. You can read this in less than a day. I also, his stuff isn't always short, but I love Steven Pinker's work. I don't even know where to start with Steven Pinker. Um, he's sort of become the, like, definitive, he's a professor, I think at Harvard, but I might have that wrong. Um, you know, he's sort of a, like a psycholinguistic guy. He, you know, does a lot of work around the history of language and what it means, you know. So, you know, people are like, oh, it's the demise of the English language. You know, he sort of very calmly says, actually, no. And actually, if you go back, you know, 500 years, you were seeing the exact same argument, which was, you know, it's the demise of the English language because of, you know, the Oxford comma. Or, you know, there's always something. And now it is this whole like, oh, short format writing, it's the end of the English language. And I contend very strongly on that. I mean, it's a, it really is harder to write a shorter letter. Well, Erica, thank you so much for joining us today. I am grateful that you joined us. I want to make sure our listeners know about a few things. I always want to give some contact information and share with listeners how they can work with you and, you know, learn from you some more. So the first thing, you briefly mentioned Claxton University, and I wanted to make sure that our listeners understood what that was. So that is an online training module that is optimized for busy nonprofit professionals within small and medium-sized organizations. It does cost something. Unlike Word of Fire, it's not free. It costs $425, but you get really the equivalent of thousands of dollars of consulting by taking this online course. So that's number one. Number two, um, go to klaxonmarketing.com. You can find out not just about Claxon University. You can use the Wordifier. You can see Erica's blog. You can get lots of great information there. Number three, check out her program online at the University of Washington. Now that URL is so long <laughs> that I am not going to read it on the air, but we will link it in the show notes. Number four, go and find Erica at Twitter. It's simple. Her name is Erica Mills, and she is at Erica Mills. So go on to Twitter and follow her. And then the last three things that you will be able to find at on our show notes, you will be able to find a link to her book, Pitch Falls, Why Bad Pitches Happen to Good People. You will also find a, a link to the uh, book that she had mentioned, the, the author that she had mentioned. And, of course, you will find a link to Elements of Style by Strunk and White. So, Erica, thank you again thank for joining so us. Thank you so much. It's been a joy.
as always, you can go to our show notes at SuccessfulNonprofits.com and you can get any of those links. I know we hollered out a lot of them fast and you are probably walking the dog, flying a plane, doing something that will not allow you to write them down right now. But you remember our URL, so go there and check out the show notes. As I always say, while you're online, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your streaming app of choice. And if you really like this show, and if you've listened all the way to the end, statistics show, by the way, that most podcast listeners do not listen all the way to this point where I am doing the outro. So if you are listening, it means you are a fan. And if you are a fan who has not yet written a review, come on, write a review. Help a brother out. That's our show for this week. I hope that you have gained some insight that will help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.